Hi, guys. Oh, yeah, see, with those lights, I've got to know you guys are actually hearing me. And this is a big room. Wow. Um, my name is Van. I am uh, back here for the second time. I am no longer a Living Room North rookie speaker. That's the good news. The bad news is I have to follow Shannon from last week, who I understand none of y'all should be here this week because she killed. That's all I keep hearing in church. Oh, she killed it. So I just thought all y'all were dead. But I'm glad you're not. Glad you're here. Hey, so um, I'm Van uh, Baird. I'm uh, a husband to Wendy for over 23 years. Yeah, there you go. Y'all will catch on eventually. Um, Daddy to two girls, Sarah, Ashley's 21, Chuck's 17, and I run a couple of businesses, and that's neither here nor there, but I love, I love, I love Jesus. And so I'm glad to be here tonight because my heart for those of you that are gathered here tonight is huge. And you're going to find out as I tell a story in a second, why that's such a big deal. But this age is just so critical. And so I'm thankful to have this opportunity to talk to you guys. Um, so whether you're here, cause this is your weekly routine, I see a lot of the living room North t-shirts on. So I assume you guys come a lot or whether you're here for the first time because there's that cute guy or that cute girl. And by the way, if you're here for that cute guy or that cute girl, they know you're here for them. So it's kind of awkward, but that's okay. But no matter why you're here, I'm just glad you're here because if you've never stepped foot into this environment or even a church, I just want you to know that if you look, took time to look around this room at everybody else that's here, they all have the same insecurities you do, they have the same issues you do, the same fears. And so when you come here, it's just a, a place to kind of gather and, and share community. And that's huge. Community is huge. I think how many people depend on the living room for community? Like this is, you guys look forward to this every week. There you go. Yeah. And so that for me is, is critical from a community standpoint, because I think when you get to identify with certain people and, and lock arms with them, it makes life so much easier. So thank you guys for letting me, let me speak. And I just want to pray over our time real quick, and then I'll get into to my talk. God, I just love you. I love the fact that you create an environment where these students can come and, and gather, whether they know you or not, whether they know what church is about or not, but that there's a place that these college students can come and, and hear and, and about you and, and, and have community. And so would you bless this time, bless their lives, and I just thank you for all that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, so the... Uh, the, the talk, this whole series, Alcatraz, really, really interesting. I'm 30, well, no, I'm much older than that. I'm 46. So Alcatraz, for me, when I was growing up, was a movie, like, for every week. Like, there was a new Alcatraz movie. There was, like, the Birdman from Alcatraz. You ever heard of that? You should watch it. It's a good movie. Like, Scott's nodding. He's like, yeah, I remember, I remember that movie. Yeah, it's an old movie. Um, but there was, you know, even later on, there was The Rock with Nick Cage. Who doesn't like Nick Cage? He's awesome. Just kidding, he's awful. He's an awful actor. But Alcatraz is really, really interesting. I mean, this, this impenetrable fortress, this, this place where people who did really, 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 really bad things got sent to. And they said, you know, the, the, their marketing scheme was, hey, come to Alcatraz, you'll never leave. It's inescapable. We're gonna lock you away for life and you're never, ever gonna get a chance to leave. It's absolutely the most inescapable prison. 
ever. And so I'm gonna warn you, I'm gonna start with kind of a heavy topic and then we're gonna get to some hope here in a second. But as I, so I think about Alcatraz and I think about prison and I think about places you can't escape from, I know I have days like that where I just feel completely trapped and completely just put into a cell that I can't get out from for different reasons. So I got a couple of questions to start things off. You don't have to talk about these out loud, but the first question I wanna run by you, is there anything in your life actually holding you captive? Because that's what these guys did. If they got sent to Alcatraz, they were captives for life, literally, locked away in a jail cell. And I just wonder if there are certain things you have to deal with on a daily basis that you kind of feel stuck, that you kind of feel captive about. The next question is, anything making you feel hopeless? I can't, I cannot imagine getting a verdict from a judge and saying, you're going to prison for life and you're going to Alcatraz, the most inescapable place ever. And I think in just relationships and things we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, there's times we can face things that feel really hopeless. Next question. Anything you feel like has mastery over you that you are slave to? I mean, when you go to prison, I mean, you watch, like, anybody watching Nick Cage? Or not Nick, uh, Luke Cage? Anybody watching Luke Cage? Nobody? Come on. Luke Cage, it broke the Netflix internet. I mean, it was just the day it came out. So they're at this prison, and you, they're basically, there's guys that are just masters over these prisoners. And I just wonder, is there anything that you're being mastered by? And then lastly, what do you do when you feel like you're in a situation that's inescapable? Now, for most of you, I would hope, if you're here tonight, you've never been in prison. But if you are, welcome. Please don't hurt us. But um, if you've never been... <laughs> But to be inescapable, to be in a situation, probably emotionally, maybe spiritually, or even physically, that you just feel like you can't escape from. When I think about being locked up relationally, I spent um, many, many years of my life, probably since I was born till I was about 25, in a prison where I would absolutely lie and make up relationships. Like I would create, not like imaginary friends, but I would create imaginary friends, which is great when you're four, but not when you're 14. And so I actually was in a prison for most of my life. And I'm gonna spend some time unpacking that for you guys tonight. Inescapable is interesting though, because in reality, there's really nothing in life that's inescapable, even Alcatraz. The next slide shows there was actually three guys that made it off the rock. So in this marketing scheme that said it's absolutely inescapable, you cannot leave, you cannot get out, these guys showed the way. They actually broke out, nobody ever found them, and I saw on the internet, there's actually pictures of these guys circulating now. They actually got out and escaped. And I want that to offer some hope as I do a talk tonight that um, if I hope I can be honest with you, <clears throat> I have told, I'm going to tell in, in 30 minutes this story to more people than I've ever told in my life. And it's, it's just, it's my story. And the background is I had a complete other talk. I got asked to do this a few months ago and put together a talk and then they found out they're doing the Alcatraz series. And so kind of last minute, I had to figure out what I was going to talk about. And it was about this topic of being stuck, about being in a place where you feel like you can't get out of. And man, that was my story. 
And so I actually had to like pull in my 17 year old and say, hey, by the way, dad's talking about this and I, you don't even know my story. So if you guys are okay with that, I hope you are. I want to go someplace I've never gone to in a public forum like this in hopes that on the back end of it, you get a better sense of what it means to have grace and what it means to have mercy. And that there's a God in the name of Jesus that can walk you through anything, no matter where you are in your life. Here's one thing I know to be 100% true, no matter where you are, who you came from, or why you're here tonight. 100% true, undeniable, that everybody in this room, every last one of you in this room is a liar and you're a thief. Hi, I'm Van, don't you wanna hang out with me? <laughs> everyone's a liar and everyone's a thief. And I'll give you an example. Ladies, when that awkward guy comes up and asks you, hey, you wanna go out sometime or get some coffee or, you know, Netflix and chill or... <laughs> your response is, oh, thanks, but fill in the blank with whatever lie you wanna tell him. Because no way you would look at him and go, oh, thanks, you're really awkward and I just don't wanna hang out with you. No, no, you're gonna give them some sort of lie. Guilty. Guys, fellas, you ever done this? You ever been listening to sports talk radio and somebody throws out a theory for you? Like it's really cool theory. And the guy says, you know, I don't know why on the end zone on that play, they ran the jet sweep. They should have just run the power formation. Game would have been over. And you hear that and you file that away. And then the next time you're with your guys and you're hanging out with your boys and they're talking about that same game, you're like, you know, I just don't understand why they ran the jet sweep. The power eye, the power eye, the game would have been over. And all your guys are like, dude, that's pretty observant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, you don't give credit to the sports talk guy that you heard, you absolutely become a thief and steal the idea. You just make it your own. Right? So we lie and, and we steal and I, and I make light of that for obvious reasons. I don't want anybody to think, you know, I really think you guys are liars and thieves, but we all spend time there. So oversimplified. And I just think no matter whether it's a small lie you know, stealing somebody else's thoughts or their property. That seems kind of funny, but I just wonder if we're all honest, what lie have we told at some point in our lives that now has us trapped? Was it a little one, a big one that kind of got out of control? Was there something that you now have in your possession? You didn't pay for it, <clears throat> wasn't a gift, but somehow, You've got that in your possession. Maybe you stole something that really just wasn't yours. And, and now that, that lie, that, that, that lie that you told or, or something you, you, you stole, or, and now it's just eating you alive. And it's not just a little itty bitty, ha, let me laugh it off because I don't want to hurt the guy's feelings lie. You're trapped because you've got a lie that's getting bigger and bigger and you really don't know how to deal with it. Unfortunately, for me, I lived as long as I can remember until I was around 25, literally lying and stealing. 
almost every day of my life. So it starts innocently enough, or at least it did for me. I was, um, if we, let's go back to first grade. First grade's a good grade, right? You, you kind of sail through kindergarten, okay? You, you, you realize I'm a big boy now, I don't need naps. So now I can actually stay awake all day. And you're in first grade. For me, I figured out in first grade that if I would tell my teacher that I wasn't feeling good, that I could go to the nurse. Well, that was kind of cool because the nurse was real motherly and she would lay me down on this bed with this paper that crinkled when you lay down on it. And she would take this, um, back to this old school, this is 1976, you guys. She would take this uh, thermometer, it was in like this plastic thing and she'd peel it back and she'd slur it on your tongue and you'd gag. Cause it wasn't like the thin thermometer, it was like the plastic stuff that kept the germs from getting on there. But I'd get my, my temperature taken and, and they, would, they would mother me and they would give me juice, which was kind of cool. I'm just kicked back, sipping on some juice, not in class, which was kind of nice. And then if I, could, if I could tell them I really wasn't feeling good, they'd actually call my mom. And my mom would come and get me and she would take me home. And I ended up on the couch watching cartoons. It's pretty awesome to get out of school just for telling them, hey, I don't feel good. I couldn't wait to go back to school to tell them I was sick again and have it start all over. It was great. Fast forward a few years, Mrs. Perry's fourth grade class. Unfortunately, just a sick stomach or saying I don't feel good, I actually started turning into a coping mechanism. And what I'm gonna describe for you that happened over the next 10 years or so is actually a psychological term. It's called Munchausen syndrome. It's where you start to tell people you're not feeling well, even when you are perfectly fine. And so I, I developed this coping mechanism. And it started in the fourth grade with stress levels. Now you wouldn't think fourth grade's that stressful. But as a fourth grader, with three fifth grade guys that were picking on you every single day, it got a little stressful. I mean, it was weird. Like if I raised my hand to go to the restroom and I'd go down the hall to the boys' restroom, it was weird, they were there. Those three guys seemed to always be where I was. And they would start picking and they would take their shots. And I developed a huge fear of them. Well, you couple that fear with the, the fourth and fifth grade field day. And it was a huge day. You got to go out in the playground, all the fourth and fifth graders together, and you just turn them loose. Like the teachers loved it. They didn't have to really do anything, but just kind of like make sure nobody died. That was it. But I knew that was a huge opportunity for them. Pretty much unsupervised. So on the way down the hall, going out the field day, I passed out collapsed right there in the hall. Now, because I didn't really pass out, I have 100% memory of this whole situation. I remember the, the kids freaking out. I remember the principal, old dude at Bain Elementary. I wish I could remember his name, but I just remember he was like, remember Robin Williams playing Popeye? He just kind of came in, <laughs> scooped me up, and he walked, had to walk me out the hallway to the office, which is across the parking lot. I mean, I can like still remember looking up like at the sky. And he takes me and Mom comes and, what in the world? Why would your son pass out? Good news is I didn't have to go to field day that day. So I didn't get beat up. And I realized that when I passed out, what happened after that made me feel really good. Because when I got back to school, guess what everybody was talking about? Me, man, are you okay? Man, what happened? Oh, we were so scared. 
And I'm like, oh, so you kind of like me now. And I didn't really feel liked, but that gave me attention, not in a good way. And so then that started to develop habits that you would definitely say were unhealthy. Because over the next 10 years, I would learn to tell lies really no matter what the situation was. Because I had no sense of who I was. I had no identity. I was just this kid who all of a sudden realized I do certain things, I get attention. And so I would tell you that um, in high school that I was on the show Silver Spoons with Ricky Schroeder. And only like five of you are gonna know who that is. But who does that? Well, I did. Because if I could pull that over on you, I thought maybe you would like me a little bit more. And so my life developed into more and more of living lies by telling lies. And then the Munchausen syndrome, the, the saying I'm sick when I really wasn't, kind of escalated and went to a really bad place. When I was trying out for the basketball team in high school, I was um, third year junior. And for that, whatever reason that year, coach decided, hey, we're gonna be a, a, a fast team this year. And so before the tryouts, we're gonna see how in shape you are, so we're gonna all go run 440s. Well, I had no idea what a 440 was, but apparently it's 440 meters as fast as you can around the curve, and you had to do that like 10 times. And about the eighth time in, I was kinda of done. I didn't really, I wasn't digging it. And so track with me now, because this is gonna make zero sense to you guys. Let me walk you through this. So I come around a curve, and I decide I don't wanna do this anymore, so I collapse in the infield. Now, the psychosomatic part of it is interesting because I'm fully aware of what I'm doing. And I collapse, passed out in the infield, in a bed of fire ants, all down my face. But I don't move, I'm passed out. And then for whatever reason, once the ambulance came, I decided that when I came to, that I thought it'd be cool if I said I couldn't move the right side of my body. And so, began multiple times of me scaring the living crap out of my parents. There were a lot of tears, there was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of money spent, but I was literally in a wheelchair for days. I went and got evaluated by multiple doctors, neurosurgeons, who determined that something neurological had happened and maybe the ant bites had played into it now remember, I'm making all this up. Not being able to move one side of my body. They would prick me and I wouldn't react. Because it was such a large trigger in me that I could literally shut down and act sick whenever I wanted to. But through all the pain, through all the money, through all the like what's going on, through all the tests, dude, when this kid who was like, I don't know, Junior year, I was maybe a buck 35 soaking wet, six foot four, not really a lot of friends. You come wheeling in school in a wheelchair and everybody wants to know what's going on. And I got more and more attention and that kept feeding my lifestyle. So when I was developing this talk, I was like, how much do I share? Because I only have so much time. There were lies upon lies upon lies that I'm not spending a lot of time on because I want, I want to talk about the prison that I was in and how captive I was to this way of dealing with life. And so as I keep developing these symptoms and I would have them whenever my stress level would get up and I could have an episode that 
Help me kind of not have to deal with the fact that I failed 11th grade. It took me five years to get out of high school just because I lied my way through it. And so it was a coping mechanism, it was an attention getter, and it was my life. A few years after that, I met this beautiful brown-haired woman. I came in from playing tennis one night, my roommate. She was standing there with her best friend, hair down to here, legs up to here, tan, it was summer. And I met Wendy. And I announced that night, by the way, that night, I'm gonna marry her. So I had a feeling, but I also know what all I'm dealing with. And as we start dating, as we start that courtship process, I still have those episodes. So we enter into a relationship, her thinking I'm as sick and not really knowing what to do about it. That's, that's our relationship at that point, she's in. There was episodes where I was in the hospital and she would show up and she was part of the family at this point. So by the time we actually got married, that was, that was part of my story as far as she knew. And none of it was true. Absolutely none of it was true. So I wanna spend some time tonight talking about what came out of that. Um, see, the thing is, when, when I met Wendy and, and we, we, got, we actually got engaged with her you know, thinking I have these symptoms, through that engagement process, the, the guy that was gonna marry us, uh, Bob said, I'll marry you, but we have to go through premarital counseling. And so through that process, I found out for the first time who Jesus was. I mean, really, I had heard of him, but I didn't know who Jesus was. And it was, it was, there was a moment in my living room where I remember vividly giving my life to Christ, like accepting what he did on the cross and announcing to the world that I was now a Christian. I was now a Christian. And so I thought, since God forgave me of all of my sins, that's what I was being told, that I no longer had to talk about my sins and my lies. They were gone. I didn't have to deal with those anymore, ever. Which was really, really dangerous when you've lived a life that long. Um, there's a thing that happens when somebody accepts Christ though. You know, you accept Jesus, but, and this, if, you, if this is weird, I don't mean to weird you out. There's this thing where if, you, if you've accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into your life and into your heart. And through the Holy Spirit, there's a process that starts to happen. Um, do you guys know who Rich Mullins is? He's a singer, he's dead now. Um, but he was a really cool guy, and he, and he told this story, I think we have a graphic of these sweaters that he actually told about, of these Irish sweaters. So apparently in Ireland, the soil's not real good to grow anything, so guys would become fishermen, and they go out in the North Atlantic, and they go fishing. Well, I guess they didn't build really good boats either, because Rich Mullins tells about how they go out, and they go out wearing these sweaters that their wives and their moms would knit for them. And they were saying prayers, they would knit prayers into the sweaters. They would, they would knit blessings into the sweaters in hopes that the blessings and, and what they were wearing would bring them back home. Well, sometimes it worked, and other times it didn't. The boat would capsize, and they would just go missing, and they would spend months out on the water. 
And if you spend months out in the water, you just start to decay, kind of rot, get stinky. And eventually you would wash up on the shore again. And that's what these sweaters were important for because when they washed back up on the shore, the wives and the moms could look at them and go, no, I, I know it's decayed, but I know he's with me. Kind of weird, but kind of a cool story because I think really weird thoughts like that. So it's an identifier. The Holy Spirit is an identifier. And so what happened, even though I brought in all these lies and all these, I don't even know what to call it because it wasn't even me, into the marriage, that eventually had to come out. And we were living in Chattanooga, and I don't remember the why, I don't think it was a church service, I don't think I heard of a talk, but I remember confessing to my wife all the years that I had faked these illnesses. I had come clean with that. And we were newly married, one year. And then I had to go have these conversations with my parents and convince them, I had to convince my parents that I wasn't lying about lying. Let that sink in. <laughs> I found out years later, they, were, they would tell Wendy, so Van's really not well, right? He's just telling us that we won't, we won't worry. Like I had to convince them that I lied all those, all those years. It was a really awkward relationship for a long time. Oh, and by the way, I was this Christian, so you need to believe me, because I'm now a Christian. And I thought, all my sins are gone. I don't have to, I don't have to own up to any of those. All the other lies I told, like, I don't know, when I told my mom that this girl, I lived in South Carolina, met a girl at the beach. We dated, that was true. She's actually, she was from Flowery Branch, ironically. And I don't know what happened or what was God was dealing with, but I decided that she needed to be dead. So I announced my mom, well, my girlfriend had a tragic accident. It was just the way my mind worked. It was the dumbest, it was unexplainable. But those kind of lies that were just elevated and part of my story, and I thought, I don't have to answer for any of those because I'm a Christian. Well, ironically, God wasn't finished with me yet. Even though I kind of came clean to my wife and I came clean to my parents about you know, faking all the illnesses, there's this, there's this really fancy church word called sanctification that takes place. So sanctification is a fancy word for this process that once you... Once you give your life over to Christ, that's great. But then there's this whole really long road that you go on to look more and more like Jesus. I'll put it this way. I thought, no, I'm a Christian, so I got it. It's just like saying, here is an apple tree sapling. Well, what is that? Well, it's an apple tree, and we plant it. And it's like thinking, tomorrow I can now pick apples after, off the apple tree. It doesn't work that way. You have to have the apple tree grow, mature, so it would then bear fruit. And the sanctification process, that fancy word, is just like that. As you accept Christ, you grow in your faith and you become more mature. Well, what I didn't wanna do was let go of my pride and admit all the other lies that I had told my entire life. I just thought, I can hang on to those. I can deal with that. And I would never humble myself to the point where I would actually come clean and tell everything that I ever lied about. But God had different plans for me. Um, so actually, um, so 
got married. We lived in uh, Tennessee for a while. And as new believers, we go to this church and I got really active and plugged into this church. And even with all my crap, even with all my junk, I decided I'm gonna go to Bible college. I'm gonna become a youth pastor. How messed up is that? You want me being your youth pastor? After knowing all that, which by the way, not a lot of people knew, wasn't making it real public. But what I hadn't done is I hadn't learned how to not lie anymore. It was still a huge part of my life. Even though Christ had saved me, I still had these, all these mechanisms. So got on church staff. I was um, the youth director for middle school, 24, 25. And I had a responsibility every week as the youth director that I had to type up a newsletter, fold them, put a stamp on them, and we did this thing called mailing stuff back then. So I had to mail a newsletter. That was my job. And one week, I just didn't do it. I just, I don't know why, just didn't do it that one week. And I actually remember vividly taking like the, the colored paper that we printed them on, and I threw them in my trash out back. Well, the next Sunday came and went, and then we had a meeting that Monday, and the guy that was my boss at the time, he goes, oh, hey, a couple of moms said they didn't get the newsletter this week. I was like, well, that's weird. Like, did you mail them? Of course I mailed them. Didn't even hesitate. Of course I mailed them. Now, remember, I've told some pretty, whop, pretty big whopping lies at this point. Made up some really crazy stuff. What God used to break me was a lie about mailing newsletters. My boss said, hey, I, I wanna take you out for coffee. And we went to the Bojangles on Two Notch Road in Columbia, South Carolina. Had a little chit chat for a little bit. And then he called me out. He goes, hey, I, I really don't think you mailed those newsletters. I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I mailed the newsletters. Well, and he just, honestly, he, he told the story later. We sat there for an hour and 45 minutes with him knowing I was lying and me defending the fact that I wasn't. And he'll tell you, he, I almost had him convinced. Like he was starting to feel a little small, like maybe, maybe he did mail them. And I wish I could tell you what happened and what he said exactly, but I, I just, he kept talking and I looked up at him after a long, awkward pause where he's contemplating whether he should just leave. And I said, I didn't mail him. He said, okay. Of all the lies, this is the one that at that point in time, I thought tripped me up. But in essence, it was the best day of my life. So what happened after that was I came under church discipline. So I was on church staff. I had to step down and then I had to start meeting with an elder who ended up being my mentor for, and still is to this day. But Ed loved on me and showed me more mercy than I deserved, which is what mercy is, right? There's grace and there's mercy. But mercy is you deserve something and, and you don't get it. He had to convince my wife to be really, really mad at me 
I'm lucky to be married because at this point, the fear that was going through my mind in that conversation at Bojangles, the rationale that I was trying to make for defending it was I cannot come clean without this. My life is gonna be ruined. My marriage is gonna fall apart. I had all these lies in my head saying, you can't come clean. You can't come clean. It's gonna be too hard. You're gonna get beat up. You're gonna be bruised. You're gonna get cut. It's gonna be ugly. And all that was absolutely true. It was, it was a year and a half of not knowing if we were gonna stay married. Not because of the fact that I didn't mail a newsletter, but because through that process, I had to keep fessing up over and over and over again to this person that I didn't even know anymore. And that my wife certainly didn't wanna be married to. But that's the hope that anybody has for being stuck in a situation where you feel like, I can't possibly get out of this situation. There's no way. I can't possibly humble myself to get out of this. And that's what I had to do. I, had, I thought I was good because I came clean about being sick all the time. I thought, oh, I'm good. Well, God said, yeah, but you humbled yourself before your family, but you haven't humbled yourself before me. And what that looked like is I'll borrow this illustration from a book that I've long forgotten the title of, but this one illustration set with me. And this is, there's a process and there's a verse actually tied to this, James 4, 6. Is that the next slide? Yeah. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is so true. Until I humbled myself and came clean, God was not necessarily all in with me. He said, I need you to humble yourself. And there's, the book talks about the road of sanctification again. And I, I wish I, I had the perfect prop, but imagine the sanctification process being, you, you're on the top of a mountain, not, not the top of a mountain, you see people like get to the top and they like walk around and they take pictures and they're holding their hands up. Top of a mountain that when you get to the top to stay there, it's at the, the top peak. There is no plateau, it is pointed on both sides. The sanctification process is you getting to the top and walking and trying to stay on this road because that's the only thing that can keep you alive because if you, if you fall, it's a sheer cliff on either side of that road. And so it's actually impossible to walk upright and stay on this sanctifi sanctification road. It's impossible because you haven't humbled yourself. You're relying too much on your own strength and your own balance. And the only way that you can possibly stay on this road is to get down on all fours and use all fours to balance. And as you sanctify yourself, there is a door that you're eventually gonna have to go through to where you completely humble yourself. And this door cannot be walked through upright. You have to practically be on your belly. And that's where God wanted me and that's where God said, if you will give that to me, if you will humble yourself completely before me, I will give you grace. It wasn't an either or. It wasn't like he was trying to make a deal with me. It's just the way God was trying to reach me that day. And he said, you've got to be lower than you've ever been. And I will use that. And I promise you, I will continue to love you. Um... Through that process, there's also another verse that I just kinda had to cling to. It's in Proverbs. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but 
the one who confesses and renounces them does find mercy. I didn't do a great job of explaining everything that I did wrong in my life, just for time constraints. But I hope I painted enough of a picture of just the unbelief, the world that I lived in that just did not exist, the people that I affected, family, friends, coworkers, my wife, luckily not my children, they never saw any of this. But I, I was given mercy. My wife eventually came around to thinking, okay, he's different. And the only reason I was, the only reason I looked any different was because of Christ who loved me so much he wasn't gonna let go. Even though what I was going through was leaving me so disfigured spiritually. It ate me up. I was cut, I was bruised. I was, there were days where I just thought it's way easier to just end this because of what I was having to to deal with. It was weird little stuff, like going to a 10-year high school reunion and then going, hey, how's that, you know, paralysis thing? Like, it's gone. No explanation, I can't, it's just awkward conversations. But God kept using me and kept walking me through this. And what I learned is that I still had a bunch of secrets that I'd never owned up to. And those secrets I kept trying to keep in the dark, had to come to the light in order to be dispersed. I mentioned that I had to kind of change up the talk last minute, and so it was on this topic of, of hiding and, and feeling like you're in prison and, and learning how to humble yourself. Um, in, in preparing for that, there's a new blog out. It's been out for, I think, 21 days now called bluebabiespink.com. And a friend of mine, Brett Trapp, is writing it. And it's his story, it's his story about growing up in the South, but growing up as a male who's same-sex attracted. And he's been brutally honest in just his message, and I encourage anybody to read it. He, he broke the internet at a TEDx talk last week because all of his readers knew he was gonna be talking. And it was a live stream and it shut down because everybody tried to get on to hear Brett talk. He's doing a wonderful job of explaining his story and, and the fear and the shame of, of staying in the dark with what he was dealing with. And I could totally relate. And he has this quote that I thought was completely applicable to what they were asking me to speak on. He said, secrets are the opposite of plants, which need sunlight, water, and soil to grow. Secrets thrive in dark, dry, neglected places. The more you neglect them, the healthier they get. The more you hide them, the more they thrive. And the darker you can make it, the bigger those secrets grow. And secrets hate being talked about. You can injure a secret with vulnerability, you can poison it with transparency, and you can handicap it with openness. Secrets shrivel when they're discussed. And I'm living proof of that. There was many, many conversations I had where I thought there's no way this person's gonna understand. And I have been shown grace and mercy over and over and over again because I gave up my pride. Pride will absolutely conceal so much in your life. 
where humility will absolutely reveal everything that you need to reveal. And it was a hard concept for me to understand. But today, because I got so beat up, because I got so scarred, because I went through so much, that person does not even exist anymore. That person is unrecognizable. Because I'm, I love the scarring that I have from all those years of coming clean. Every time I would have to admit to something, it was like another scab, another scar. And I just don't look the same anymore. But pride will keep you from so many things in your life. And I, and I know I, I gave you a kind of a, whoa, okay, I'm not sure I wanna hang out with Van anymore kind of talk. But there's something that you're dealing with or you're gonna deal with where you feel like, I can't possibly come clean about that. I'm too trapped. I'm stuck on my own personal Alcatraz. And I'm telling you, self, which is, leads to selfishness, which leads to pride, it's a horrible thing. And I wanna read you kind of a long quote, but it's a guy, by the, he's a pastor by the name of Judson Edwards. My wife, in celebratory manner, had this hand printed, and we have this hanging up in my office. And I get to read this a lot. And I want you to own this. If there's anything you're dealing with where you feel like you can't come clean, it's probably because of pride and it's probably because of selfishness. And I want you to be dancing with joy, not hiding in pride. So here's what Judson says. I am personally convinced that this submission, this, this dying to self, this crucifying of pride is crucial to our joy. We think of denying self as this somber, grim-faced business when it is, in truth, a prelude to dancing. There was a moment that I will, it's just me and Wendy, it's just me and my wife, where she told me for the first time in many, many years that she trusted me again. And I danced all around that room that night. If you want power, go ahead, learn to be assertive. If you want joy, learn to be submissive. The reason our death to self increased the joy level all around is that it also increases the love level all around. Only when we die to self can we fully love one another. Because it's this devilish creature demanding all of our energy, reaching even into our pocketbooks for favors. How can we be attuned to another spirit? How can we have community? How can we really be free when self is making so much noise? How can we ever hope to love another? There were times where my wife just wondered, do you even love me? Because I don't even know you. It was impossible for me to give myself to her because of all the pride and all the selfishness. When self is alive and well, it offers us an all or nothing proposition. So we either pacify self or we crucify it. Pride conceals. It just does. But man, humility reveals so much and it only comes 
from trusting Christ. And he has, if he can get me through this, if I can come out of the other side of some of the darkest, one of the darkest lives that I know of, I don't know what you're dealing with, but I hope you get some scars. I hope you trust Christ enough that he'll pull you through. Yeah, he's gonna pull you through and you're gonna have some things to show for it. Tears, maybe some broken friendships, some really hard conversations. But to continue that Rich Mullins story about the sweater, he says, one day, you're gonna wash up on a different shore, not the one in Ireland that the fishermen washed on, but you're gonna die and you're gonna wash up on a heavenly shore. And because you trusted and because you became humble and because you had those hard conversations and because you let the light shine and you didn't stay in the darkness, you're gonna be completely disfigured when you wash up on that shore. You'll be unrecognizable. He says the angels are gonna stop and go, what is that? And then Jesus is gonna walk up and go, no, no, that's a human. And they go, how do you know? He says, see that sweater? He's with me. She's with me. And now she's a new creation. Do not let the pride conceal in your life. Let humility and humbleness exude in any situation. Let me pray for us. Okay, God, I did it. Um, I haven't had that conversation before. I just give it to you. I don't know. I don't know. It's my story. I understand that. But if there's that small little lie, if there's that situation where there's somebody in this room that feels trapped, if there's somebody that feels like, man, I can never come clean. Would you encourage them? Would you right now through your Holy Spirit, would your Holy Spirit become that sweater that identifies them as someone that belongs to you? May it bring them comfort and peace. May it allow them to have conversations they thought they could never have. Give them a boldness to trust you no matter what. Bring people into their life that they can have a really hard conversation with that will show them mercy, but will also help them get better as a human being, as a person, as a friend. God, we love you. I love the way you work. I love that you give me this opportunity. And I pray over the hearts of all that are gathered here. Thank you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.